46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, we're discussing why, where, and how to plant native grass habitat. And joining me to discuss this is Pheasants Forever VP of Conservation Delivery, Chris McLeland. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And we're talking grass today. Grass, land, habitat, grasses, forbs, pollinator habitat, all that good stuff. This is our last episode of our habitat series. We've covered everything from southern whitetail habitat improvement to how to get started if you're new to this kind of stuff. Last week we talked trees and today we're talking grass. And if you tuned into our episode uh, like a month and a half ago or so, we uh, spoke with another person from Pheasants and Forever. That was Bethany Erb. And we were talking about kind of large scale grassland habitat issues, the importance of grass habitat, prairie habitat, grassland habitat across the country. And the fact that we've lost, I think, something like 53 million acres of this ground in just a little over the last decade. Uh, this is tremendously important habitat for deer and birds, bugs, all sorts of stuff, and we're losing it. So in that episode back then, we discussed uh, high-level ideas for how you know we could work to advocate for new legislation that will hopefully get more grassland habitat on the ground. But today, I want to talk about what we can do as individuals. If we own land, if we have access to land where we have permission to improve the ground, what can we do to get grassland habitat out there? And why should we do that? You know, I think that, well, I don't think, I know that doing that is not only going to be good for the earth and the animals, but it's actually going to be really good for your hunting too. So that's what we discussed today with Chris McLeland. Chris is the VP of Conservation Delivery for Pheasants Forever. 
So he does this thing for a career. His job is working with people to help get better habitat out there. But he's not just a pheasant guy. He actually has a long history as a deer hunter too. So he can speak to us from a white tailor's perspective on how this can actually help us with our deer, with our deer hunting, and with the good times we want to have out on our ground. And that's our plan today. We cover a lot about why this stuff matters. We cover a lot about how to make decisions around what to plant, where to plant it, when to plant it, how much should we plant, all that kind of stuff. And then we spend a good amount of time then discussing how to actually do it. You know, do you need a broadcaster or a cedar or a drill? You know, do you need to spray? Do you need to burn? How to do all those different things? We cover it all today. So if you've ever wanted to put something in your ground, something like CRP type habitat that you see, you know, on TV that looks so great and you see these antlers rise out of the grass and come walking over the hill, you know, that, that dream scenario. If you've ever wanted to live that yourself, you want to listen to today's episode as well. So I think without any further ado, let's get into this chat with Chris McLeland. All right. I'm here now with Chris McLeland. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to have you. This is gonna be no pressure, but this is the the finale of our Habitat series month. We've we've covered I think this is our fifth week of episodes, and we're ending with this one. So we got to end on a high note. All right, Chris, can you do that for me? <laughs> uh, I I got hey I got you covered. I'll do my I'll do my absolute best. Okay, no pressure. Exactly right. I got you covered though. Well, speaking of pressure though, I, I got to ask you this to kick things off. Your title at PF is VP of Conservation Delivery. At least that's the latest title I've seen for you. Is that first off? Is that accurate? VP of Conservation Delivery. Yeah, that's 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 accurate. I've been in I've been in this role for it'll be a year in July. So it's a a new kind of a new position within the organization, and um, uh, that's uh, that's uh, the seat that I sit in. Okay, so. Vice President of Conservation Delivery. That sounds really, really important. Like, it almost sounds like you yourself alone are responsible for like the entirety of what Pheasants Forever is about. Because like, Pheasants Forever is conservation, and you're in charge of delivering conservation. Uh, a, do you feel that pressure? And B, what does that mean? What do you actually do, Chris? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, to answer your question, yes, I do. I do feel that pressure. <laughs> Uh, but thankfully it's, uh, it's, I have an incredible team, um, out there across the country that are, that are, are doing the real heavy, heavy lifting. Um, you know, really what my role here is, is, um, within Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever is, is to put habitat on the ground, uh, you know, no if, and, ors, or buts. That's what, that's what we're about. Um, we strive to be, a force multiplier for conservation across the country, uh, public lands, private lands, working with a uh, just a diversity of, of state and federal partners. And my my role is really to make sure that our field biologists and our our state and regional leadership across the country they have what they need um, to do their job to the best of their abilities and put as much habitat on the ground and and service those partners and and landowners we work with to the best of their ability. So. Um, my job is to, to make sure our team has the tools they need and then just get out of the way and, and let them do what they do best. So there's pressure in that, uh, only because I, uh, I've got such incredible staff and, and we have such incredible biologists here that, um, you know, I never want to be the, 
the bottleneck or the pinch point or have anybody waiting on me. So um, as far as getting good work done and, and putting high quality habitat on the ground, I, I have, I'm just so proud of our team and, and, and just am thankful to work alongside them. But, uh, but yeah, this, uh, this position, this role is, um, is, uh, never dull. And I really like that. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, re- pretty rewarding. So, so, you know, obviously our audience is, is mostly whitetail focused. So there might be a decent chunk of people listening that don't really have a clear idea of, of how pheasants forever and quail forever works. Can you give us a little more yeah. clarity on exactly like how does PF put habitat in the ground? As you said, like what, what does that actually mean in action? How do you guys make those things happen? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's been an evolution to be honest with you. And, and we're kind of, um, you know, continuing to, to ride, to ride that wave, you know, organization started in 1982. Um, you know, we're a grassroots volunteer based 501 C three, um, conservation, not for profit. Um, and we started very similarly to, um, you know, we have a very similar story to many conservation NGOs. Our organization, um, was started in a basement, um, and, and really grew, um, you know, grew from there. And, uh, for many, many, many years, the way that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever delivered its mission, uh, to put habitat on, on the ground was through our volunteers. So our, you know, men and women, you know, given their time, uh, to go out and turn the dirt and, um, uh, put wildlife habitat on the ground, primarily on public lands at that time, um, some private land projects. But, um, as our organization grew and our, our volunteer base grew, um, we started, uh, just asking some tough questions. You know, how can we do this? How can we do this better? How can we impact the landscape and, and as, uh, you know, a beneficial and, and positive, uh, way, uh, to the fullest extent, again, being a force multiplier for all the good things going on out there. How can we help lift that boat a little higher? And in 2004, we had the opportunity to partner, um, to, to put the first private land biologist through pheasants forever, quail forever on the ground. And, and, um, and since that time, that program has, has continued to grow alongside our chapter volunteers. Uh, we have, uh, an, an army of men and women out there, um, that are working one-on-one with landowners, providing conservation technical assistance on, um, on any private land habitat project they have, you know, pheasants and quail that's great but we do so much habitat work for um you know where the objective is whitetails or it's wild turkey or it's waterfowl you know we don't we don't uh you know we 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 go where the landowner goes and so we want to help them achieve their objective and so we have um we have a an entire workforce of of as our ceo refers to them as 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 fire eaters you know men and women out there (laughs) <laughs> just eager and hungry to put habitat on the ground and and uh and um you know we've we've partnered with you know as i mentioned state and federal uh, organizations to help make those things happen our chapters as well um and uh we've kind of expanded now into the public um public land phase of this so now we have uh we're starting to grow an arm of our organization that's providing boots on the ground on those WMAs um to help um, resource managers do a little more there and fill some holes and, um, and also provide additional public access. We have staff out there across the country that are working to 
uh, create more public land for folks to uh, to enjoy and recreate on. So, so it's been an evolution. I mean, it really has been. And and uh, and uh, but we, you know, the way we get work done is is uh, not by ourselves. I mean, I think that's the biggest take home is it takes willing partners, willing volunteers, willing landowners, and and where uh, there's genuine interest and desire to do good things for wildlife, we're going to be there and do everything we can to make it happen for them. So. Um, it's a blessing to be here and we're very th- uh, thankful and fortunate to, you know, have made it this far for sure. That's awesome. Uh, it sounds like a lot of work though. There's a lot of moving pieces. You've put in a lot of years doing this. Uh, I'm sure investing a ton of time and energy and blood and sweat and tears, all those cliche things, right? Uh, yeah. why do you do it? Why, why did you choose to make a career and a life revolved around conservation? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, so I'm, I'm from central Missouri, uh, grew up in a really rural community, great community, um, agricultural community. Um, most of my family's still there. And, and, uh, you know, it was just one of those things where, you know, I loved, um, I loved, you know, being in a rural landscape. I, I grew up, uh, hunting and fishing with my grandfathers and uh, my dad and my uncles. And, um, you know, I just, for whatever reason, just developed a passion to be outside, you know, this, this majesty of, um, you know, that there still could be unknowns out there, you know, that there's still wild things, um, out there, uh, just always, uh, you know, appealed to me. And it was something that just was a calling for me. And, and, um, uh, I've never, it's a very hard uh field to 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 stick with because it it can be it can be challenging but uh um there was never an alternative uh for me i wanted to to make a difference um and and make sure that you know there was healthy landscapes and and plenty of wildlife out there on those landscapes and and um you know i was going to make this work one way or the other and uh it's definitely been hard um at times but it's been the most rewarding thing uh, I think I could have ever been involved with, and uh, I'm just very thankful to have found my way to, uh, you know, to the seat that I'm in today. And, um, and, uh, you know, even on the hardest days, um, there's still, there's still some, so many positives to be thankful for. And so, um, yeah, I just can't imagine doing anything else, honestly. Yeah. I love that. So what about, what about on the, actual land work side. You know, I, I see that you've got a, a family property where you're doing work on your own land and, yep. you know, improving, improving the ground yourself and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure that is helping you with your hunting goals. Right. But, yep. but, but why do you do that? What is it about actually working the ground yourself and trying to make that place specifically better? What's, what is it about that? Because this whole, you know, last month we've been talking about, it's been, you know, diving into a, should you, you know, should you try to improve the habitat that you have influence over and then how to do it? But I'm curious for you, like yeah. why, what's your pitch for why, or what it is, what is it for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, for one thing, it's, um, you know, it, it's like anything, you know, it, it nothing stays the same. You know, when, one of the first things you learn, um, you know, when you're, when you're in, you know, can chasing this, this career is, um, the term succession. What that simply means is, you know, as the clock ticks, things, things change. And so when you think about, 
you know, your property and you think about habitat and, and the quality of habitat, um, you know, if you don't stay active and um, in, in the wildlife habitat world, disturbance is a good thing. You, you want you want disturbance um, because that's constantly setting succession back. And generally what that equates to is is it increases the quality of the habitat that you have. And so, you know, from a from simply a recreational habitat standpoint, you know, I want to ensure that I have the highest quality habitats, you know, for, for the species I'm interested in on my property as possible. In order to do that, I got to get, I got to get active. And um, one of the most common, I guess, misconceptions that, that many have is um, that you can overdo it. And you certainly can, but most of the time, you know, you're, you're not going to be as active as you probably should be with your management right out of the gate. Cause it's just going to seem like it's a, it's a bit too much, but you know, so for, for those reasons, I, I just want to ensure that I have the highest quality habitat that I, that I can have on my property. I also, you know, there, for me personally, there's a legacy component to it. You know, I like to, I like to know that, um, you know, that this property, whenever I, whenever I leave, uh, whenever that may be is, is, uh, better than it was when I acquired it. And, um, you know, and, and you start, as you get out and you start turning the dirt, and you, you start putting a little fire on the landscape and you start seeing these changes. I think naturally there's this desire to want to learn more about what you're seeing. And I, I've seen that so many times with landowners I've been privileged to work with over the years is, you know, you talk about what you could expect to see if they do practice A, B, and C. And if they do that, and they see those changes that you sort of predicted, there's always this, they become very inquisitive. Okay, now what's this flower or what, you know, why did that happen here? But we've got a different response over here. And then the more they learn and the more, you know, exciting they get, excited they get, um, the more that passion for, you know, not just the, the animal that they're chasing, you know, it, it's, it's the land itself, you know, it's the, it's the ecology that's going behind it, that's driving the bus behind it, that it starts really lighting a fire there. And, and, um, and that fire has been burning bright for me for a really long time. And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of why I get out and do it. And, um, you know, it helps make me feel connected to, to what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah. You know, as you were just describing that, it made me think of an analogy that I think helps describe something I've tried saying in the past, which is, you know, once I started working on habitat projects myself, kind of like you, you start seeing so much more around you. You start connecting to the landscape in so many different ways. And it, it like opens your eyes to a whole world that was around you. You just never really realized it. Um, That's right. It's kind of like, and I don't, I think you do some fishing. It's kind of like yeah. putting on polarized sunglasses. If you don't have those polarized glasses and you look at the water, you just see glass reflecting up at you, right? But you throw those Polaroids on all of a sudden you can see the fish, you can see the rocks, you can see the algae, you can see the wood, you can see everything underneath the surface. And I feel like as soon as you start working with the land, it's the same kind of thing. It's not, no longer am I just passing through the woods trying to find a deer. I'm passing through a landscape, which I'm seeing all these different moving parts, pieces and parts now that I, that I get, that I, that I understand to some degree that I just never would have before. It, that's a, that's an incredible analogy. I'm going to 100% steal that one. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's, that's a, that's a really good one. I, it's exactly right. You know, and you, you just have much more depth 
and perspective to, um, you know, to, to what you're trying to accomplish, you know, and, um, and, and what it helps you understand at times. And you were talking about diversity and, and habitat structure and it, it gives anyone the understanding that whether they have 40 acres or 400, um, there's always more that can be done and you can also make an incredible impact, um, you know, on your 40, just like you can on your 400. I mean, it's, it is, um, you know, it's just a matter of understanding what's going on and, and understanding what the limiting factors are. Um, you know, the healthier that, that property is, that landscape is, um, the more diverse it is, you know, the, the more wildlife you're going to have and, um, you know, all critters, but definitely the species you're looking for too. Um, you know, so it's, it's just a better, deeper perspective and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the end goal. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk about then how we do it. You've got me sold on the fact that I should keep doing it, but let's talk about how to do it. Now you, Chris have been drafted as the grass guy. Okay. Because, you know, when we talk, when we talk whitetail habitat, a lot of the time, like food plots get a ton of press. They're very sexy. Everybody wants to talk about food plots. If I were to go down the line a little bit more, maybe we're going to talk about, you know, chainsaw work. People get pretty excited about cutting trees or planting trees too, right? We just last week talked Mm -hmm. with some folks about planting trees, you know, putting trees in the ground, getting apples out there, all that kind of stuff. That seems pretty obvious. Um, Something that doesn't get a ton of play. It's been talked about more, but still mm-hmm. nothing like food plots or timber management is grassland type habitat. If mm-hmm. we were in an elevator, Chris, and you had like 30 seconds or a minute to pitch me on why a whitetail hunter should be thinking about grasses and forbs and that kind of early successional grassland type habitat, why they should put that on their property, pitch me on what your what your angle would be convince me absolutely well to me it's it's about usable habitat so if i look out my window right here in my office right now um i'm looking at and i work i'm working out of my house so i'm looking at my yard and i've got a oh about a quarter acre yard that i maintain and it's it's short and it's lush it's green it looks good but beyond that i've got 80 acres of native warm season grass. And if you look at the structural differences and you look at that, the height and the density and the diversity in those natives, as opposed to what I'm maintaining in my yard, doesn't take hard, doesn't take long to see that that 80 acres of, of tall, lush native prairie is much more usable at many more times of the year than, you know, say, say my yard. So for me, it all boils down to that. It's from a whitetail standpoint, I'm looking for cover uh, in the winter. I'm looking for um, uh, fawning cover in the spring. I'm looking for forage diversity, which these grasses can provide at different times of the year. And I'm looking to create uh, more usable space um, on my property. You know, I live in central Missouri. You know, we're blessed with some some great uh some great timber tracks, but, uh, you know, the landscape's open in a lot of cases as well. And so when you put that grass on that landscape, you know, if you don't have, um, you know, a forest or a woodlot nearby and you've got native grass on the landscape, you still have incredible 
diversity and structure, and you're going to have whitetails and all kinds of other wildlife using those, um, you know, using that habitat, using those acres. Uh, whereas um, if it wasn't there, you know, it would be it would be much less so. So, yeah, you know, you're improving the habitat quality by adding these naves, but you're also creating usable space um, and huntable space as well. So, um, it's a benefit in in many many ways to to incorporate natives uh, where and when you can, um, and uh, it's it's one of those things to me. Um, I've never met a whitetail hunter that that has installed uh, native grasses that have been disappointed uh, by the use and um, and uh, and how much deer how much deer are attracted uh, to those habitat types for sure. So yeah, um, you know I I think they're a, a positive um, in many many ways. So I want to run a, a I guess a hypothesis by you. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a theory, I guess. So I anywhere I've ever hunted deer. You know, let's let's say like the Great Plains states don't count. Yeah. So we're going to say like uh, in an area that's not all grassland. So in, a, in an area that's mostly timber and ag or some mixture or interface of those two things. Anywhere I've hunted like that, where I find a patch that does have grassland type habitat, let's say uh, one field got put into CRP or there is a CRP in this property on this side and there's regular ag and timber on the other Every time I go into an area like that that has some kind of grassy component like that, that grassy area is the hub of activity. Almost oh, yeah. always that is like the hot spot for stuff coming in and out. And I mean, I always gravitate towards those locations. Yeah. Is that just me or is that happening? Everywhere? No, no, I, it's it to me. I, that's, those have been my experiences and, um, it's, you know, for lots of reasons, you know, I have a, uh, on, on my property, I have actually a um what we would refer to as a remnant prairie um on it so it was um it's full of natives but i didn't i didn't seed anything originally um it was just there and so through a little bit of management and prescribed fire and um i did do some interseeding later on but it was it was always great whitetail hunting and um you know they feel they feel protected because they can get in there it's tall um, you know, they can, re- they can get the wind in their favor. So, um, you know, for lots of reasons they can, um, you know, they just feel protected. Um, it's an opportunity for them to, um, uh, like I said, for in, you know, for the, uh, for fawning, it's, uh, you know, same reasons. It's just one of those areas that they, they'll key in on. Um, but when I'm hunting, you can bet I'm going to be looking on the map to see, okay, where, you know, where is the prairie? the natives, whether it's, you know, remnant or CRP or whatever it might be, you know, where's the grass and where's the way in and out. And I'm keying in on that. And, uh, cause I know at some point in time, they're going to be there. Um, and, uh, I can tell you just on my place, a little bit of TLC in that remnant prairie, getting that kind of whipped back up into shape, um, made a world of difference on the number of deer, uh, and the quality of deer that I started seeing, uh, just within a year. Um, and, and the use is, is only increased. And, uh, one of my favorite things to do actually in the spring is when we, uh, we burn a third of that field a year and, uh, you know, there's nothing cooler than seeing a set of sheds glowing, uh, right after you run a fire through there. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. And, uh, so yeah, they, they're, they're definitely a deer magnet for sure. Now, what about 
stuff outside the deer. I mean, you coming from PF and QF, I mean, obviously grassland type habitat is great for pheasants or mm-hmm. other upland birds, but what, what other types of wildlife and animal life or bug life do these habitats uh, support? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you think about, you know, the, the, you know, the United States, we had uh, millions and millions of acres of, of native prairie. So, uh, many, many, many species adapted to live in on these landscapes and in these environments. So, um, you know, multiple, many species of grassland birds um, outside of bobwhite quail um, that uh, utilize these habitats that, uh, you know, either are ground nesting or, uh, or uh, it will nest in shrub, uh, shrub habitat adjacent to these grasslands. Um, and native pollinators, you know, uh, far too many to name the, uh, the forbs, the wildflowers that, uh, generally accompany these landscapes, uh, and are in these restorations are, are necessary, uh, hosts and forage sources for, for the pollinators that we need, uh, to keep the diversity moving across, uh, not just the country, but the world. And, um, and so you, you name it. I mean, these, there isn't hardly a species in, in, you know, the Northern Great Plains or the central part of the country that isn't adapted, um, you know, to survive or needs, you know, native grasses in some form or fashion. And so um, they're critically important, um, you know, for for, uh, insects and, and wildlife species alike. Here's, we've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. One more fancy term, I guess, that I want you to break down for me and help us understand. You hear about ecosystem services. So mm-hmm. not only does a grassy landscape like this support a lot of birds and bugs and animals, but it does other good stuff for the land too, right? Um, 
Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that looks like in the case of grass? Because last week we talked about the ecosystem services of trees. Uh, sure. What? What? How do grasses stack up? Oh yeah. So it's 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 kind of it's nothing short of amazing, really, when you when you get into it. So um, if you take your typical, let's say your you know the the grass that's in my yard out back here. So you know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at fescue. I'm looking at, um, um, a little bit of clover, but by and large, those grasses are very shallow rooted. Okay. So you're talking, you can take your scoop shovel, put it in the ground, flip a clump of fescue over, and you're going to have the majority of the root mass is going to be right there just under the surface. And, you know, it's pretty sod forming, which is, if you think about it, it's a little bit like a carpet. When, you know, a three inch rain comes in Missouri, comes through here, what happens is, is it hits that fescue sod and most of that water runs off. And where does that go? Well, it'll find its way to the nearest stream. That stream will find its way to the next stream. And a lot of that water that typically would infiltrate into the ground uh, sheds and runs off. That does not happen uh, in, in native restorations or on remnant native prairie native warm season grasses and forbs are so deeply rooted that uh, most of the water when a three inch rain comes and 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 hits the ground goes into the ground and so it's reabsorbed where it's supposed to go Um, that's one of the primary reasons why you know it's highly recommended that you know these natives are planted in in areas where you know, like on CRP, where maybe it's a little bit more erodible, um, maybe there is some more water um, erosion concerns. These these species can can withstand that and can can protect that soil, can armor that soil, and um, and help ensure that uh, that water goes into the ground and doesn't shed off. And um, and likewise, just uh, carbon sequestration. You know, warm season grasses, native prairie, uh, do an ex exceptional job of capturing and storing carbon Mm -hmm. and so um you know the uh and i'm sure in the next you know two years five years ten years we're going to continue to learn more and more about all the other services that they provide but uh you know when it comes to protecting the soil increasing water infiltration storing carbon um you know the list goes on these you know native prairie just continues to impress and never disappoints in that in that fashion so it's good for the land. It's good for the air. It's good for the water. Right. It's good for our deer yep. hunting. It's good for any other Absolutely. kind of hunter who want to do. Uh, <laughs> sounds like we should put grasses in the ground or help keep them healthy if they're already there. My question yep. then to you is, is how can we as landowners and hunters think about, you know, grass type habitat being a part of the larger picture? Let, let's just say maybe we'll try to create the generic hypothetical property that most people have to work with. They've got, you know, a small piece of ground, we'll say less than a hundred acres or somewhere in that ballpark. And it has a mixture of some kind of timber type cover and then some kind of openings, maybe they're farm fields Uh or old farm fields or pasture, something like that. So it's a mixture of those two things. Um, How would you recommend we think about adding grass as a part of that component? Um, 
you know, I, right to my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe I would, if I wanted to get better betting on the cover, that'd be an obvious way to make some kind of grassy area for that. Or maybe I would plant strips of grass to act as screening cover to block off areas and stuff like that. Yep. Um, yep. But in your mind, what are, what are the, some of the ideas that you've either done yourself or you've seen other people or how should we think about like how this is a part of the mix? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. This is really where the, the, the rubber meets the road. And, and honestly, when you're working with private landowners, the fun really starts, um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I was going to make a comment earlier, you know, I mentioned CRP a lot of times, uh, you know, I hear that, you know, CRP referred to is a way to refer to native grasses, even if it's not, yeah. in it's become CRP like or not. the so generic yeah. clinics of things. <laughs> yeah. that, that's right. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But, um, <laughs> but the reason I wanted to bring that up is, you know, as it relates to, you know, a landowner getting assistance to do work like this, there, no matter what state you live in, um, there's a number of opportunities for, you know, financial assistance, definitely technical assistance to help you get a management plan and get the step-by-step instructions and the guidance on, you know, how best to do this work and install these practices. And, um, but it all starts with an idea and, and that starts with a conversation. And so, in my mind, you know, the scenario you laid out, it kind of makes a difference on if it's an agricultural, if, you, if the fields that you have available to you are ag fields or if they're old pasture, that kind of, to me, it, it, it's sort of, there's a decision tree there. So if it's ag, if it's agriculture, you know, old food plots or something that you're looking to maybe put some warm season grass into, um, my immediate thought is, and what I've had a lot of success with in the past is, okay, let's take a look at field borders. You know, do we want to, do we want to, um, you know, install native grasses in a hundred percent of those acres or, you know, should we, uh, maintain some of those acres and, and border those fields. Now, keep in mind that a lot of wildlife, you know, whitetails included really like edge. So they're edge species. So the more edge you can create, especially alongside, um, you know, blocks of timber, they tend to, you know, be utilized more, not by just whitetails, but bobwhite quail or, you know, ringneck pheasants, whatever it may be, um, because they feel safer. You know, they can hop out into that food plot or into that ag field at any point along that edge. And then, you know, at the first sign of danger, they can hop back in and be, be gone. So I look at that, how can I create and increase my edge, um, in more of an ag land setting? And in many, in many cases, you know, there are little pockets and things like that. We may go ahead and consider, you know, squaring those fields off a bit and filling those pockets in with native grass. Um, but that's how I kind of take a look at that, uh, scenario. If it's old field and we're going to be converting, um, you know, let's say old pasture to, to natives, I take a similar approach, but I'm, a, I'm likely a little more heavy handed. I always like to err on the side or on the side of more grass is better because the more grass you have, as I mentioned earlier, you're increasing the usable space um, and you're increasing the amount of habitat you have on overall on the property. So I want to err on the side of, of, of more is better uh, there. And, um, and also you kind of get an opportunity to take a look at how you, you know, especially in a scenario where you might have old field or, or a field next to, next to timber, you know, okay, how can we create some advantageous, um, food plot scenarios where we can, we can lay this native grass out, 
in a way that's beneficial for you and, and create some opportunities for some, some kill plots or things like that. And so, um, you know, again, that's, that's the fun part where you kind of get to look at the map and you, you sketch your ideas out and, and, um, and work with those landowners to, to be ultimately land on something that they really like and, and, and go and go that direction. But the take home here is, um, there's a thousand, you know, no matter what the scenario is, there's multiple options that, that you can look at and all of them will be beneficial. Yeah. All right. Let, let's, uh, let's do some like hypotheticals then. I'm curious what oh, your sure. thoughts would be on some specifics. Let's say, you know, we've got, I don't know, our, our property is this kind of mixture and I don't have any crops on my property, uh, but it's in an agricultural type area. So there are, you know, corn and beans and stuff in the general region. Uh, I've got timber and I've got what used to be farm fields, but the owner stopped, you know, the previous landowner stopped farming a year ago. So they're starting to go, um, you know, you know, weeds and stuff are growing up in them, whatnot. And I've got a decision to make. I need to decide, well, do I want to put food on the ground? Uh, do I want to put food plots in with my, you know, my openings here? I've got, I don't know, let's just say 40 acres and a, th- a third of it or sorry, a quarter of it is open. So we've got, you know. 30 acres of timber and, and 10 acres of openings. And I'm thinking, all right, everyone plants really sexy green clover food plots and big giant bucks come walking into them and they stand there and just wait for you to shoot them. That seems like the easy thing to do. Uh, <laughs> so that temptation might be to plant a big old food plot or a bunch of food plots in all those openings and things. If you had this scenario, 40 acres, 75% timber, 10 acres of openings, and you were going to decide how you would mix it up, how you would mix grasses with food or no food and all grasses or, or what. Uh, give me, you know, in this very specific hypothetical, walk me through how you would try to balance things and map it out a little bit. Yeah, you bet. So my first step is, I, and you kind of alluded to it right out of the gate, is I, I take a look at what's around me. So you know, what is the limiting factor, you know, within that section that you're in, let's say, you know, so to me, it sounds like food probably is not a limiting factor, but diverse cover might be. So, you know, if that ends up being the case, and for this scenario, we'll say that it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm leaning pretty heavy on, you know, putting most of those openings in diverse native grasses, you know, something with you know, like big blue stem and Indian grass, something that's tall that gives me some structure um, and and high quality cover, but also you know ten species of wildflowers in the mix. So um, so there's some forage base, just not only for whitetails but many other species as well. Um, it's hard to get away from, and I agree with you. Those those lush ladino clover food plots are pretty sexy and they look good. Um, and I would, I would consider that. I mean, there, there's definitely going to be, um, some opportunities most likely for, um, you know, to include a, a micro plot here or there, you know, just something along the border. In fact, most of the time when we are, um, you know, planning, uh, native restoration, native grass restorations, you know, the best way to maintain those seedings is with prescribed fire. And so as part of our Typically, as part of our our management plan, we'll encourage you know green fire breaks, which typically consist of clovers and and um, and other perennials of that nature that 
can go around. So we'll incorporate a little bit of that. And that would be something that I would look at, but you know, if, if diverse cover, especially bedding cover is limiting, I'm going, I'm, I'm putting the majority of my open acres into, into native grasses with, um, you know, either relying on the, the fire breaks for my perennial uh, food source there for whitetails or potentially a micro plot somewhere in a corner, um, you know, where I can, I can slip in and slip out, uh, with the wind in my favor. And, and, um, and especially during the rut, these are, these are areas that are, that are, uh, they're, they're some of my favorite areas to hunt. So that's, that's how I'm leaning. I'm looking at the landscape in, at, you know, in totality, determining what I think is the most limiting factor, um, and, and using that to help kind of set my compass arrow with where I go from there. Yeah. I want to take things to the extreme. So it, what if we kind of look at the example you mentioned, which was where, where food is not the limiting factor, but diverse covers the limiting, limiting factor. Mm-hmm. What if we went to the far, far, far side of that spectrum where let's say it's, it's Northern Ohio, like Northeast mm-hmm. Ohio, which I'm pretty close to. There's stretches where you go around there where it's just section after section with no timber at all. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, after crops are harvested, it's a flat, barren wasteland with nothing. You have no cover. What if you inherit a property out there and you think to yourself, well, gosh, I have zero trees or very few trees. Uh, it's all, you know, it's a jungle of corn and bean fields in August, but come, you know, October and November, there's nothing. I need to start from ground zero. What if I was trying to create all the cover I would have with grasses or newly planted trees, if that was an option, what would you do in that case? Would it be the exact same thing? Just plant the same kind of blend and then add some pots in there? Or is there a different species or a different mix or something else you would use when you have that limited of cover? Yeah, great question. So it's, you know, it, it does kind of depend on what your objectives are. So if you're, um, as far as mixes go, um, definitely multiple options that you can choose from. If I'm, if I'm looking at, you know, whitetails as my primary, my primary objective, that's what I like to chase. That's what I'm looking for. And I'm in that part of the state. Uh, I'm sticking with, you know, what I mentioned before, you know, big blue Indian, uh, little blue stem as my grass component, um, you know, 10 to 15 species of Forbes. And I'm, I'm putting as many acres in on the ground in, in grass as I can. Um, definitely going to, you know, have some sort of a perennial food source incorporated in there. You know, like I mentioned, I'm a fan of clover, um, you know, and whether that's my fire breaks or, you know, a food plot kind of s- snuck in a back corner or in the middle of, uh, of, you know, this, uh, this grass seeding, either way, it's going to be, it's going to be advantageous for you. And, uh, and I, you know, I've seen scenarios just like this and those, those, uh, you know, those, those properties tend to tend to start loading up about harvest, you know, they'll start seeing more and more, more deer activity and, and, uh, and it, it peaks during, during rut generally. And, um, you know, it stays that way all through the winter, you know, this is, you know, we didn't really mention it before, but, um, you know, native grasses as far as thermal cover goes you know for grassland birds or ground nesting birds as well as whitetails you know being able to to withstand the cold break the wind right. um you know they they uh provide a lot of those uh resources that critters need and 
um, when you get up in those landscapes like that, where there isn't much in that, you know, much cover at all and winters can be harsh, you know, this is, this is an important habitat for a lot of species, especially whitetails, but, um, many, many other species. So I'm going, I'm going heavy and I'm going with tall and, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm putting as many acres in as I can. Now, what are your thoughts on monoculture plantings? There's some people that advocate for like a straight planting of switchgrass or something like that. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and I know there's reasons for that on one hand, but what's your take on that? Is that problematic in any way? Is that, why are you recommending a blend versus that? Yeah, great, great question. You know, there's, there's definitely scenarios and situations out there where, um, you know, for one reason or another, a mono monocultural monoculture planting would, would make some sense, but by and large, you can, you know, you want diversity, you want, um, as many species as you can in your mix. And, and there's many reasons for that, you know, there's for one, on one hand, um, you know, the, the, um, we mentioned ecological goods and services earlier, you know, those are multiplied by the number of species that you have in your mix. Um, some species can, can tolerate conditions a little bit better than others. And so, you know, if you have a, a, you know, a monocultural stand of, of grass, that's not very drought tolerant, let's say, and, and, um, you know, needs it to be a bit wet and you have a drought year, um, and you don't have other species in that mix that can can tolerate that. You could have a you know your planting could be in in rough shape for a couple of years, um, and so you just kind of getting some added insurance there as well. Um, but also from a wildlife standpoint, as I mentioned before, you know wildlife key in on diversity. They need uh, multiple species doing what they do at different times of the year, um, providing the necessary habitat and forage base that they need throughout the year. And so the more species you have in your mix, um, the, the more that, uh, you can offer, you know, not only the, the wildlife, but, um, you know, the services on the landscape as well. So, so I'm always a fan of diversity. Um, you know, the more diverse, the better. Um, and you can always go back in later. That's something too, you know, I mentioned the typical, you know, native grass mix, if there is such a thing is generally, you know, three species of grass, 10 species of forbs, um, occasionally a, a legume in there. Um, but you can always come back in later and add additional species uh, down the road, too. So, you know, starting with a, a 310 mix is a good start. Um, and as you get your seeding kind of into shape and you like what you're seeing, you want to come back in and add additional forbs or wildflowers, you can. So, but I'm I'm a proponent of of diversity where I can get it. Okay. So I go to Walmart or tractor supply or bass pro shops and there's row after row of food plot seed bags of the, you know, the clover plot that's going to send big bucks my way and the brassica big buck slammer mix. That'll give me big bucks in December. And then there's the, you know, this, the forage sore beans from heaven. Like there's a thousand different food plot options that are marketed yeah. to me and they're easy to find, and they tell me exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. I don't know many tractor supplies or Walmarts I can walk into where I'm going to find a 3-in-10 blend of native grasses that are just right for what I'm trying to do. How does yep. someone go about finding 
this seed or the right blend, you know, someone who doesn't really know what they're doing yet and wants a little bit of a handholder or wants some direction, where can people get this stuff if they're not already tapped into the community? Yeah, great question. So, you know, it all starts with who, you know, getting, you know, making contact with, you know, either your, your state fish and wildlife agency, private lands, biologists, natural resources, conservation service, um, uh, office or, you know, pheasants forever, quail forever, farm bill, wildlife biologists, if you have one in your area and, and getting that site visit set up and walking through, um, your goals and your objectives, uh, on the property, because, um, you know, every site's different. And, um, like we just been discussing, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for, uh, for strategy here. And so it's always good to get, you know, that sound technical advice on, um, you know, what to do and how to do it. And right, along with on. that, they can, sorry, Chris, I'm going to, I'm yep. going to, I'm going to hit time out on that and ask you to expand on this part a little bit before going further, because okay. I think there's probably people listening that don't know how to find that person or they assume that this person is going to cost them money to pay for them as a consultant or something. Can you give me some specifics? Like how, how do I literally, who do I call or what office do I get in touch with to get a person to come out and walk my property with me to do this? Yeah, great. I appreciate you stopping. I, well, first and foremost, if, if you go to, um, uh, forever and quail forever's website, www.pheasantsforever.org the bottom of the page there's a link that says find a biologist and you can um you can click that link and go through our directory and see if there is a biologist near you in which case you can you can make a request for service uh otherwise you can reach out to um your state fish and wildlife agency contacts um you know whether it's you know in my state missouri department of conservation um texas parks and wildlife and uh you know, whoever, you know, whatever the state is, you're in, reach out to the state fish and wildlife agency, um, and inquire about private lands assistance. And every state has a, uh, private lands program, um, that can reach out and provide you with the technical assistance you need, set up a site visit. It's all free of charge. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's service provided, um, to you. And so, um, you know, there's a number of different organizations that can help. And if, um, and if you, um, you know, you need, uh, need technical assistance or you have questions about how to better manage your property for, you know, whatever you're interested in, whitetails, wild turkey, quail, pheasants, we can help you uh, get to where you want to go and achieve, achieve your objectives. So, um, you know, and that's, that is a tough, that is a tough, um, sometimes a question to answer from a landowner's point of view is how do I get started? You know, and, and in some areas it's not as highly you know, understood or publicized as far as, you know, where to go to get this help, um, as it, as it may be in other places. So, um, I can tell you that, you know, our staff, we have staff and, and, um, just, uh, just under 40 States. Um, if you can get in contact with, uh, someone from pheasants forever, quail forever, um, if we can't, uh, if we don't have someone close by, we can definitely get you in contact with, uh, with folks who can help you. Um, so that might be just as good a place to start as any. Awesome. Okay. So then from there, sorry to interrupt you. You were you were no, starting to go good. where where we go from there then. <laughs> yeah. So so you've got your you've got your you've got your uh you've made your contact and you've got your private lands biologist at your door. What you're gonna do next is 
you're going to just go take a walk around. You're going to look at the property. You're going to see what opportunities are there. They're going to be talking with you about, you know, what your goals and your objectives are. You know, I would love to see more deer or, you know, I heard quail five years ago. I don't hear him as much as I used to. I sure would love to hear uh, more Bob White singing or, um, you know, hey, I, I enjoy seeing monarch butterflies when they pass through. What can I do to, um, you know, to, to see more monarchs and you know, whatever that might be. Uh, we can provide you with the technical assistance that you need. Along with that comes a conversation about native grasslands and, and grasses that you want to, um, that you might want to install. And with that generally comes a management plan. And along with that management plan comes your, you know, your recommended seed mix. So that, that tech, that uh, technical service provider is going to take a look at your, you know, where you're physically located at, what state, where in that state are you located? What species were uh, historically prevalent in the in that particular area? And then take a look at your goals and objectives, and they're going to develop your seed mix. With that, you generally get a list of vendors, and there's native seed vendors all over uh, the country, uh, depending upon where you're at. And generally, you're provided with a list, and you can go down that list and make your to make your selection based on. Um, you know, who you want to, who you want to work with. And so, um, you know, there, there is, uh, you know, like I said, a number of great opportunities out there for folks to get their hands on, on, uh, the seed that they need. And, and those vendors also provide a, a an exceptional service and, and can answer technical questions as well. And, and, uh, you know, help, um, help folks get to where they want to go also. So. Awesome. Uh, Here's here's another kind of I get this is kind of related to this type of question like understanding what the right grasses are for your area mm-hmm. for your situation. Um, I'm curious about how you would handle analyzing a current uh, like a current old field like something that you haven't mm-hmm. planted you haven't done anything with but you arrive on the scene maybe it's because you're brand new to the property or maybe it's because well there's a, here's here's a great perfect example. I think I saw you post a video, I don't know, last year or something where you were driving around your property the spring after doing a burn. And you said you're heading down to this area that you burned and you were going to go put a food plot down there. And you get down to this area, you arrived on the scene where you thought you were going to carve out this grass and put in a food plot. And then you said, oh, whoa, change of plans. I see milkweed and I say, I see this stuff and I see this stuff and I see this stuff. There's no way I'm going to get rid of this. I've got to keep this. How how do you go about making that decision? What did you see there that made you realize, oh, this is worth keeping. We're not going to get rid of this. Or, you know, more generically, if someone's looking at an old field or a new field or something that they don't know about, how do they, how can they go about judging how high a quality of habitat that is or how important that is and if they need to change yeah. it or just nurture it? Yeah, great question. So you know, one thing to keep in mind is, and in that that video that you saw, so that was uh, that was an old field originally when I bought that property that uh, had some had some remnant native prairie in it. So when I bought it, you know, one of the first things I did was kind of take a look around, and you know, it was old pasture at one time, and so there was you know there was um, some cool season grasses in there and, and things that you know it was providing some habitat, but I would see you know, a clump of big blue stem over here and, you know, maybe a, a wildflower 
over there. And, um, you know, the seed bank, no matter where you live, there are natives in the seed bank. Those seeds are there. And it's kind of a, it all really depends on how degraded that system might be as to, okay, can I bring this back with a little bit of fire and herbicide? Or do I need to go down the road of putting a native, you know, going in and prepping it and just doing a restoration and do do a seeding. And so, so I'm looking for, I'm looking for keys. And in that particular case, you know, milkweed is a, um, is, is a, a very, very important to monarch butterflies. And, um, and it's also, you know, something that, you know, believe it or not, sort of limited on the landscape these days. And so, um, so yeah, I was, I was going down there. I was going to put in a perennial plot along this, uh, along this, this stream. And, um, we had just done some burning earlier in the year and came back and sure enough, there was a whole bunch of milkweed there. And so I always err on the side of diversity, like I said earlier. So that's, that was not something I planted in that particular spot there, but it was there and it, my property is going to be better the more diverse it is. So for me to have roto tilt that and prepped it and went in with, uh, with clover in that particular spot, um, wasn't going to maximize everything that my, you know, my property could be. So, um, so I pivoted and, and moved and went to a, went to a different spot and it all worked out, um, for the better. But, you know, looking at those old field situations, you can kind of tell based on if you're seeing remnant natives present versus none at all, that kind of tells you, okay, whether you've got something to work with here or whether you're looking at a complete burn down and, and then reseeding. And in this particular case, I, I did both. I, I had a, you know, kind of had the field split in half. I had a little bit more remnant on one half, a lot less on the other. I did a restoration on one half and I uh, did some, some burning and some herbicide application at the right time and brought the other half back. And so, um, you know, it's, it isn't an exact science, but again, it's, it's, it's working the land, you know, and it's, it's working with what you have and making, making management decisions that you think ultimately are going to help you get to where you want to go. And, um, and it, it's a, it's a really fun process along the way. And, you know, the thing I would say too, is, you know, habitat management, they're, was a Bob Ross said, you know, there's no mistakes, only happy accidents. It's very much like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, you know, you, you are afforded the opportunity to learn as you go. And, um, you know, there's nothing generally that's too bad that you can't go back and, and, uh, learn from and, 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 um, and correct later. So yeah. it's really a, it's, it's low risk, high reward, you know, kind of activity. So. Yeah. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. 
Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Let's say we've yep. we've either discovered an opening that we want to improve and manage or well I guess this is probably two two separate tracks I suppose. There's probably one track which is how do I plant something that is not currently in grasses. It's it's either an old crop field or an old pasture or something or it's timber and now it's open. Um so I guess part one is I'd love to talk to you about how do we go about planting new grasses, a new blend. And then the mm-hmm. second avenue will be then what if we have something old, some remnant, and we want to manage it and improve it? Um, can you walk me through the step by step? You know, how do we prep yeah. and and actually do this stuff? Because it's, I mean, is it is it just like planting a food plot, or would you say it's different? It's different. It 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 is. And um, you know, the thing I would say too is is uh, the techniques are the same, but the way that you do it is takes a little bit more finesse. So let's take the scenario that you have uh, a crop field and you're going to, you've decided that you're going to put native grasses or field borders into, into this crop field. In my opinion, that's the best case scenario. If you're doing a, uh, you know, you're actually going to do a seeding. The reason for that is like anything else, this is where it's similar to, to putting a food plot in. It all starts with your, with your site prep. If you, if you do not go a hundred percent in all in on your site prep, you could have some challenge. You almost will always have some challenges with your seating. So site prep is incredibly important. And, you know, typically if I had um, a landowner that let's say they had an old fescue pasture, it wasn't being farmed at the moment, but they wanted to go do a native restoration on those acres. I would encourage them to to plant, let's say, soybeans for two years, something Roundup ready. You know, get beans there, get that that cool season competition under control. Um, that's really, really important. So, um, going into a can I ask you you a know, question? Crop- you bet. Go ahead. Real quick, you, you you've mentioned the cool season competition, and mm-hmm. and something that. I've heard over the years and have had to pick up on my own, but I think a lot of people that aren't really savvy on this stuff won't really understand the difference between like cool season grasses and warm season grasses or you bet. something yeah. like that. Can you, can you just explain that a little bit? You bet. Yeah. I appreciate you stopping me there. I should have done that early. I, so cool season and warm season grasses. So they're, 
um, native varieties and non-native varieties of both that exist on the landscape today. Warm season grasses grow when the soil temperatures are warmer, reach a, a certain degree level. It kind of varies depending upon the species, but they're actively growing during the warm part of the year. Cool season grasses are growing during the spring and the fall, typically dormant during the summer. So for example, right now we're in April, you know, looking out my window here, looking at my yard, you know, I've got fescue and, and uh, some brome out there. It's lush and it's green. It's growing right now. So that's, that's a cool season, cool season grass as opposed to the warm season, which is, um, you know, starting to green up here around here where we're at, especially if they've, if they've burned, but that's the difference. Okay. And is it typically those cool season grasses that are trouble for some of our more, uh, preferred plantings because they start going early, outcompete whatever you planted, and then you, you get this really patchy or poor growth of what yeah. you actually want. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the, you know, especially on a new seeding, the first three years are the most critical for a native warm season grass seeding. So when you've got a cool season competition, um, you know, those they're competing for the same resources. And so um, especially something like fescue that's sod forming as those native seedlings are coming up through the ground, um, that fescue can really overtake them and shade them out and out compete them. So you want to really make sure that you're, you're staying on top of that and you're diligent. But if you do uh, a very good job of your, you know, of site prep, you're pretty well got the battle won right away. So that's kind of where I come back to. If you had, in the best case scenario, you're going into a, uh, an area that's, you know, had multiple applications of glyphosate or Roundup applied, whether that is just through chemical burn down, you know, you've come, you've mowed your fescue off, you've sprayed it twice the, the previous fall, burn that residue off, come back with one more application uh, in the spring, or you're going into an area that has been uh, routinely cropped every year. You've got a great seed bed prepped. There's no weed competition. You're, you've got plenty of bare soil. Now you're ready to put your seed down. There's two ways to do that. Um, you can either broadcast seed your natives with a, with a carrier of some type, um, you know, whether that's, um, vermiculite or something that you can put into the, uh, your broadcast seeder that can, that can agitate, and also carry that seed. The native seed is incredibly light, very, very fluffy. Um, it's adapted to be spread by wind. So, you know, it's, it's can be tough to get out the back of a cedar, but um, a seed, you know, a spreader like a Vicon that has a, you know, a dog tail on the back that, that uh, can really agitate. That's, that's a, a great tool to use. Um, you want to see, and it's actually broadcast seeding is my preferred method of seeding natives. I like to go in as long as the site prep's been done very well. I got plenty of bare ground. Um, I like to go in during the winter months, you know, January, February, right before snow in my area is is ideal. Go in and broadcast seed, um, let that snow get on top of it. And then the, uh, the freeze thaw in the spring that, uh, that motion just works that seed in into the ground, just, just, just perfect. And I, I really like broadcast seeding, but the other way you can do it is with a warm season grass drill. So it looks a lot like a grain drill. 
Um, only it has agitators inside the hopper that uh, can help seed the native seed. And what you're really trying to do, and this is, again, a situation where the technique is similar to plant a food plot, but it is different. You only need that native seed to be in, I mean, about half as deep as your thumbnail is long. It just needs a little bit of coverage. It doesn't need a lot. If you uh, you plant that seed too deep, it's not gonna it's not gonna grow. So if you use the drill, you just want to have those cultures scratching the surface. That's just deep enough. But you know you you get good seed to soil contact that way. Uh, it's another great method for uh, for planting your grasses. So so you've got the seed on the ground. You've either broadcast seeded it or you have drilled it. Now comes the fun part, and that's when you get to kind of just sit back and, and watch. So year one, don't expect a lot. Those natives are putting, they're growing, but they're growing underground. So that first year, they're putting the roots down. Remember I mentioned compass plant, for example, is a very, very tall native, uh, native plant, but it can have a root, a tap root, um, as deep as, as 25 feet. So it's, it's, wow. it's putting, it's, it's putting its roots down. So don't, don't be expecting, you know, lush, big CRP looking fields the first year it's coming. Trust me, it's coming. But that first year they're putting the roots down. What you're really looking at that first year is competition. So this is where anyone who's going to do this work, whether they're, whether they think they will you know, this is going to happen to them or not, they'll kind of become um, very proficient in plant identification because they're going to be out there looking and um, they're going to be, they're going to learn how to identify natives versus unwanted species. And so you're looking out there, you're just kind of seeing what you have. It's going to be weedy. That's okay. Those, there's going to be annuals that come up in it. That's going to be just fine. It's, uh, it's actually providing some habitat for some annual habitat for wildlife. Um, this is where you need to have a, a mower handy. So it's okay. And we highly recommend at least twice a year in most areas to come in and clip that seeding down. And what you're doing is you're just keeping the playing field level at that point. So there will be a little bit of competition, no matter how good your site prep is, you'll have, you know, you'll have some. So through mowing a couple of times a year, you're just kind of keeping everything controlled while those natives are putting the roots down. Second year, second growing season, you're going to start seeing wildflowers at this point. You're going to start seeing bunches of big blue and Indian grass and whatever um, you know bunch grasses you have in your mix. You're going to start seeing these start to really show themselves. And you might be ready to rock and roll at this point. It, it just kind of depends on weather conditions and a number of things. I've seen second year plantings take off and look incredible and you're, you're up and running. Most of the time you're looking to, to clip, you know, to mow at least once during year two. And so that's kind of a, a judgment call and you can work with your private lands biologist that you've worked with on the, on the project to, to kind of determine when to make that call. But generally as a rule of thumb, I'm looking to mow once that second year. By year three, you should have an established, fully established uh, uh, grassland restoration project on your hands, and you're you're up and off to the races at that point. And by then, 
once it's established and ready to go, prescribed fire is going to be your, your friend. You know, this work is, is fun. You know, it, it is, uh, it, it does require some patience. Um, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, a benefit that comes from, you know, getting some, some expertise around learning how to use prescribed fire. And, and that's the best management tool you're ever going to have, uh, to manage your grasses. And so by year three, you ought to be looking at, okay, about time for a burn. Um, and when you burn, it kind of de- depends on what your objectives are. So, you know, you can burn your natives anytime during the dormant season. And if you burn them, you know, early, let's say January, February, that tends to favor wildflowers, more diversity. You burn them a little bit later, tends to favor grasses, a little bit more cover. All are things that you can work with your, you know, your local uh, point of contact on to to make the determination that's best for you. But but that's that's sort of the the timeline really for for putting this work on the ground and and getting a project uh, from start to finish. Okay, so then what about scenario two, where I've got uh, yep. an old field or something that I think that I've got something to work with, but I don't exactly know what and i, I want to try to turn this thing into something worthwhile what then you bet you, you bet so these are these are a lot of fun actually and they're very they're very common so scenario two you go into an old field you're walking around with your private lands biologist and you're identifying you know they they make the decision hey we've got we might have something to work with here you know i'm seeing some remnant you've got a lot of unwanted cool seasons in here but this is this is probably salvageable. Your two primary go-to practices are going to be herbicide and fire. So you're going to look at that uh, situation, and based on the recommendations of your of your you know, point of contact there, you're going to have likely an opportunity or a recommendation rather to apply some form of herbicide in the fall. Now this can be um, this can change depending upon you know, what they see out there, but generally you're going to be putting a grass selective herbicide uh, down in the fall. So something that's going to be targeting those cool seasons that's in there um, and some of those unwanted species that are in there. Um, your natives are going to be dormant, especially if you wait um, until after the first hard frost, your natives will almost always be dormant anytime after that. And if you're working with a you know, an unwanted cool season like fescue, you can spray that almost any time if the the ambient air temperature is somewhere in that 50 degree mark. I've had some great results spraying fescue out of remnant native stands in the middle of December in central Missouri when we've had, you know, a couple day warm shot there where we're in the 50s. And so, um, so you're going to go in in October, end of October, um, if you're in the central part of the U.S. and you're going to apply, you know, either a grass selective herbicide or in some cases just a, a light application of Roundup and start setting that unwanted cool season back. You're going to watch that over the winter, see how it progresses. Generally, in most cases, come you're going to come back the next spring with a prescribed fire and you're going to run fires through there. That's going to continue to work on those unwanted cool seasons, set them back a little bit more. While at the same time, that 
fire generates a response from the natives. So between the, the application of the herbicide and the incorporation of the fire, you're really knocking back the cool season and you're giving those natives a, a, a kickstart. And again, it's about succession and competition. So you can get that cool season set back just enough to where those natives are, are, um, are kickstarted enough to where they're up over the top. Um, generally, you're off, you're off to the races. And, and you, you might have to repeat that process the following fall. But generally, in a couple of years, especially if you have a really good seed bank that has uh, you know, diverse native seeds in there, You'll, you'll be in good shape. And the best part about that particular situation where you're going into a remnant scenario is it's incredibly cost effective. You know, a little bit of herbicide, you know, $80 jug of, uh, of glyphosate or, or select or something like that. And uh, a little bit of diesel and gasoline in a drip torch. And you can, you can have, um, you know, some incredibly, beneficial high quality habitat on your hands in, in just a couple of years. Hmm. Now what about long term management in, in, <clears throat> in both scenarios? Let's say you've got your great stand of native grasses like you want them. Um is it then just applying fire at some interval for perpetuity? Or is sure. is mowing ever a tool you would use at that point ever again? Um any selective spraying of shrubs or something popping up, uh, anything else? Like yeah. That? Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's all three. So you, you know, you kind of want to, you know, I guess first and foremost, you know, once you have your, once you have your grass established, you're really looking at, you know, not just your grasslands at that point, but how does that all fit within your property? And so you're really wanting to manage, you know, on sort of a, uh, a one-third rotation. So you want to see some sort of active management on your on one-third of your property a year. And um, you know, if it's all grassland, that's great. Um, you're going to be burning or uh, disking or mowing a third a year. If it's uh, kind of a, in my case, you know, in my property, I've got mixed woods and and grassland habitats, and so I'm using a lot of prescribed fire. Um, burning both my woodlands and my grasslands about a 30 year. So, but for the purposes of, you know, grassland management, you're really looking at disking, mowing, prescribed fire, or herbicides. So you have four uh, primary tools at your disposal. All are great. Um, they all have their benefits and, uh, and there are definitely scenarios where some favor are more favorable than the other. Uh, but I always lean, heavily on fire um you know it's like i said it's inexpensive it's a it's a uh, very impactful management tool for a number of reasons um and it's uh it's something that's um you know that when done correctly is is uh you know, can really give you your your best benefits your best bang for your buck there um but there are definitely are instances where you know mowing is gonna it's gonna make some sense disking especially if you have old you know, older plantings that maybe are very grass dominated and you're wanting to improve some diversity, get some diversity back, uh, back into that stand, you know, disking can be a very effective tool in, in that, uh, in that, uh, case, same with prescribed or, uh, with, uh, herbicide application too. So it just kind of all depends, but those are going to be your four primary management tools that you're going to want to have at, at the ready is, uh, you know, good mower, a, um, 
you know, a sprayer, a drip torch and, um, and, uh, a disc and you're going to be set. All right. So the one roadblock, I don't know if this is a roadblock, but this is like a, a potential red flag for me as I'm working mm-hmm. through this for myself is like, man, this sounds like, uh, a lot of kind of energy and time and maybe money getting put into this. I've got to figure out a way to rent a cedar. I've got to figure out a way to buy this herbicide. I've got to, you know, get this thing and that thing. Um, if there's someone worrying about that kind of thing, I imagine that the government programs out there to help fund some of this stuff might be helpful, like the CRP program or yeah. others. Can you can you dive further into that? Because we, we talked a little bit about how there's there's free consultation services sometimes, but there's also programs where you know the government is incentivizing private landowners to do work like this, and even sometimes compensating you for it. Can you? Can you give us the cliff notes on what kind of programs we should look for specifically and how to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just start by saying that the, uh, you know, it's, it's really been, um, it's, it's been, uh, it's pretty incredible to see the amount of, of horsepower and emphasis being placed on, uh, grassland habitat restoration across the country. Um, and in the interest that's out there in voluntary conservation practices to, to put grasslands on the, on the landscape and, and, uh, to help landowners make that happen and achieve their objectives, there's been significant resources put into, um, both state and federal programs to help offset, um, you know, the costs of, of a number of this work or a lot of this work. So, you know, to start right out, uh, with, with the program that most, folks are familiar with the conservation reserve program crp you know that is continues to be a, a very very impactful and um and popular program for for landowners to participate in you know it's completely voluntary um it provides uh, the uh, the landowner with an annual uh, rental payment um for for those acres that go into the program um there's additional funding available um in most cases to uh offset you know the restoration costs so like the drill rental and the seed uh costs and things along those lines and um you know that program is a u.s department of ag administered program uh both natural resources and natural resources conservation service and the farm service agency um help in delivering that program are uh, pheasants forever and quail forever farm bill wildlife biologists do as well and um and you know that's a very uh user-friendly opportunity for folks to get uh grassland work on the ground the crp program however does require there are some eligibility requirements so for example you would have had to have had um you know cropping history on the acres that are enrolled in the program uh there has to be what they refer to as um uh, uh, well, there's a score that's taken, a uh, biological index that um, kind of helps determine eligibility as well. So that's that's one option. The uh, the second option, again, a USDA opportunity is the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, um, EQIP for short. Uh, this program is administered by the Natural Resources Conservation Service. They have specific practices in in EQIP for grassland restoration for wildlife, um, 
you know, they can uh, provide financial assistance to landowners interested in, in doing this work. So it's, it's cost share. There's not an annual rental payment per se with this, but they're definitely available uh, funds available to help offset the cost of the restoration, putting the grass on the ground, getting, getting the drill rented, buying the herbicide. It's all available for folks. Um, you know, it's a, um, there is an application process as well, and there is a ranking and a scoring, but, um, you know, your natural resources conservation service uh, staff or pheasants forever, quail forever, farm bill, wildlife biologists can help you through that um, and help you navigate those programs as well. So, um, you know, those are two of, of, of many, but, you know, if folks are interested in doing this work, um, you know, I would highly encourage, encourage them to reach out and, and just ask the question, you know, if they want to reach out to, to us at pheasants forever, quail forever, we're happy to help them uh, get started, point them in the right direction. If we can't uh, take them all the way, um, you know, these, these programs can be a little bit confusing. Um, and we definitely don't want to see that be a barrier to anyone that's interested in putting grassland habitats on the ground. So we'll help you in any way that we can and, and, um, and help find the, the program that best fits your, your goals and objectives. So I got to say, I have not hunted pheasants in 20 years, Chris. Well, that's ridiculous. We got to fix I, that. I know that is bad. Um, but despite that, I became a Pheasants Forever member a few years ago and have stuck with it because of the work like what you're describing. They're having biologists that are helping out with these things and the the way you guys are positively impacting grassland habitat across the country, which despite not being a pheasant hunter, I love the grasslands and the Great Plains and have had some incredible deer hunting experiences in those types of habitats. So I'm a big fan of the work you guys are doing. Um, so I would tell everyone that they should strongly consider supporting the work you guys are doing at pheasants forever. You guys have a great magazine too, which your members get, which I, which even not, you know, even though the, the pheasant hunting part isn't what's drawing me in, I'm really interested in like the habitat stuff you guys talk about in there. So, so good stuff across the board. That's, that's my pitch. What would your pitch be to folks listening for why maybe they should check out uh, PF and quail forever and, and any of the other work you guys have got going on? Yeah, well, I, I, I appreciate that. I, you know, I guess, you know, I, I came to work here because of the habitat, you know, because of the mission, you know, this organization is, is as grassroots as, as they, as they get. Um, we are, uh, we do our best to, to do all we can to make a difference on the landscape for, for quail, for pheasants, for pollinators, for all kinds of wildlife species. And, um, you know, we're, we're here to, to, to make that landscape level change. And, you know, we'll, uh, continue to continue to do that and and uh we want to uh we want to continue to be in a position to to make those impacts for for a really long time and so i encourage anyone that's uh that's interested in in learning more about pheasants forever and quail forever to to check us out on our website uh www.pheasantsforever.org or www.quailforever.org uh, we're active on on all social media platforms, check us out, um, you know, give us a look and, uh, and, uh, you know, we hope, uh, we hope you come and be part of our family here. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I really do. Uh, Chris, is there, if, the, if there was someone 
who had been stuck on this hypothetical elevator and mentioned it at the beginning when you pitched us on grassland habitat. What if we had been stuck on an elevator this entire time? The elevator had broken down. We've been stuck here. You, you've covered all this ground. You've talked about why grasses are great. You've talked about how they benefit deer and other critters and the land. We've talked through where to plant it, when to plant it, how to plant it. The elevator door finally is opening now. We're about to walk off. If you had any final parting thought you could share with this person who's now about to head to their car and get off this blasted elevator, is there anything else you'd say to them? Well, for one thing, I'd have their name and their number, and I, uh, I'd be following back up with them and, and, uh, and, and, and making sure that, uh, that, they, that they didn't forget that we talked. But I would tell them this is a game changer. This, is, uh, this, this really is. These, you know, these habitats are, are meant to be there. Um, and, it, you know, we, we use this cliche all the time, you know, build it and they will come. That's a fact with this. And, um, you know, you're never going to go wrong um, making the investment in, um, in, you know, putting grasslands on, on the landscape, putting grasslands on your farm. Um, you know, they're, they're going to change how they're going to change how you hunt. They're going to change how you think of, about your property. They're going to change about change with, you know, how you think about the landscape. So don't overlook it. It is a game changer. Awesome, Chris. Well, uh, you've got my name and number, so feel free to reach back out to me and check and see how I'm doing on the, some of these things. I've got some, uh, I've got some old nasty, like fescue kind of habitat on a property I have permission on that for for years now, I've known I've, I've got to try to do something about it to convert it to something more useful. And uh, this might be the kick in the tail to finally do it. So so thank you for that, Chris. And, and thanks for all, for all of this. This has been super helpful. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and uh, again, happy to answer any questions that come uh, come our way. I could talk about this stuff all day. And I'll be uh, I'll be following up with you to see if you've you've gotten active there and then got started on your project. Don't worry about that. (laughs) All right. Sounds good, Chris. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. And that is it for us today. Appreciate you tuning in. I'll let you go with just a final couple updates. Number one, we've got a sale from First Light. If you're listening to this just when it came out, there's a sale that started on April 26th. 2022 from our pals over at First Light, up to 20% off a whole lot of their stuff. So check it out at firstlight.com. Again, that's, you know, if you're listening to this just a few days after April 26th, 2022, sorry, if you're listening to this in 2025, it's probably still not going. But uh, I do hope you're still listening in 2025 because that'd be good if this podcast is still running and helping people at that point. So fingers crossed. Uh, Other news, make sure you're signed up to the Wired to Hunt weekly newsletter. That's where me and Tony Peterson and all the other folks on our Whitetail team are sharing our updates, our articles, our how-to videos, different things to help you on your deer hunting journey as well. So check those things out. I appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up 
for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.